You're listening to The Director's Box, a football business podcast. Here are your hosts, Raphael Geller and Jesse Forstott. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse and I'm here with Raphael Geller. And today on The Director's Box, we're going to be talking with former AS Monaco Chief Executive Tor Christian Carlson. Today we'll be covering a few different topics, including how clubs determine a transfer fee, what goes into a new signing, including amazing insight into the sometimes 50-page-long dossiers written by scouts just about a player's mentality. The differences between sporting director, technical director, and chief executive. And Tor tells us what it takes to scout world football in 2020 and how to evaluate the many talented leagues around the globe. Tor worked as the chief executive at French club AS Monaco. He has also previously worked as a scout for Grasshopper, Watford, Bayer Leverkusen, Hanover, and Zenit St. Petersburg. In addition, he's also worked as a sporting director for Maccabi Haifa and a few clubs in his native Norway. Tor currently works as a consultant writer for ESPN. Uh, there aren't many football executives out there who've worked in so many different parts of the world. We're really excited that we got to have him on. Hope you guys enjoy the show. Hi, Tor. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you. Um, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm very good. What about yourself? Doing really well. Things are starting to open up here in Israel. Unfortunately for Jesse, he's still uh, locked at home in the New Jersey area. How are things in Norway? Things in Norway are, are fine, I would say. Um, if, you, if you were to come here, uh, obviously you would have to go straight into two-week uh, quarantine still. But um, from your window, at least, you, could have, you would observe that things are pretty much running as usual. Um, and even, I think, in a couple of days, there will be, later this week, the restaurants um, are, are going to open again, bars and pubs. Schools have been certain, uh, around certain areas of the country. Schools have opened, kindergarten. So things are starting to, to come back to, to normal, but obviously there's still the we're still not quite there yet and uh, and there's still no football yeah and that's uh that's the most important thing well we just kind of gave an intro on your career and everything that you've done and uh the last two shows that we had this is episode three for everyone who's who's just tuning in now but the last two shows we we focus on specific i guess you could say uh, countries and leagues and the developments and today we want to really focus more on the business side of football running a club on a more of the sporting side and we couldn't think of someone better who's been a scout, a chief scout, a sporting director, a CEO and so forth. So I want to start off with a very simple, which a lot of people ask me this question uh, in the last 10 years and I'd love to get your, your answer to it. But in your mind, in today's world, in 2020, what is a sporting director? Look, <clears throat> Rafi, I think that is, uh, <laughs> it sounds easier to answer than, um, than it is because I think the role is very, it, it varies from country to country, first of all, and even within certain countries, the role is, is, um, is different. So traditionally, I would say there was the kind of the Italian-German model where the sporting director was supposed to be... Um, you know, the head of all sporting activities, reporting to the board or the owner, um, and would be in charge of appointing, you know, whatever staff 
required in the in the different uh, departments uh, that is responsible for. Um, I think now it's become it is different. You have, for example, still the Italian model is still there, where the, the sporting director is more of a kind of a right hand man to the owner or the president, um, and is not so much involved in the day to day running of the coaching bit um, or, or, or the kind of the, the week-to-week result business, if you like. So he's responsible uh, more, mostly for the Mercato, the transfer market and, and the long-term strategy. Whereas right. I think in, in, in Germany, you will have the sporting directors are often even sitting on the bench. They are very close to the team most of the time. Uh, follow them on away games. Even, um, you know, they would be around the players before before the game and and after and uh, and then you have the kind of the English model and they've they, which is kind of more of a technical director who seems to be more of a kind of a maybe a less powerful position but more of a coordinator who takes care of the smooth running of all football operations on a on a day to day basis. <laughs> maybe that wasn't a good answer, Rafi, but... Uh, no, uh, which one do you feel the most comfortable with or which one do you think identifies the best to you and how you like to run things? It's, it's, it's really difficult to say, but I think it, it depends on the magnitude of the club. Um, if you are the sporting director of, um, for example, Real Madrid, um, <laughs> I don't think you can be expected to kind of micromanage uh, things and get too involved in the, um, you know, nuts and bolts and the kind of the, the really small details. I think you can, the best you can do is to set out to, to organize the sporting department well and have good people working for you and make sure that everybody works according to, to the plan or the sporting strategy that you are responsible for. But in reality, I think at the big club in particular, you'll be drawn so much into the political side as well as the media um, side of things. Plus, nowadays, I'd also argue that the, the transfer market and the, um, well, the Mercato bit is already a full-time job. Right. I, I, I think at the big club, that is the, probably a very sensible um, division of, 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 of the role, whereas in a smaller club, you can really get closer uh, to the real football side and you know sit sit with a head um, with a head coach on a day to day basis and you know assist him and be close to uh, to the team. But um, so yeah, that's a very very long answer to your your very good question. And and this is these are questions that were sent to us just so to start off. We're going to start off in a very macro way. In terms of transfer markets and, and signing players, do you believe that when there's a sporting director, the chief job of the sporting director is to sign the players, the job of the manager is to coach the players? Is there a mix for that? Uh, in your mind, is that the model? Or again, does it depend on which club you're on, your relationship with the manager, and so on? I think there's got to be a bit of both, and there's got to be a duality here. Um, Clearly, it's never in the interest of the club or even the sporting director or anyone that players are being brought in that do not appeal to the coach. And the coach needs to understand that he can work with these particular players and 
that they fit into whatever tactical ideas that he might have, playing style, um, even the mentality of the player. So there's many, many details there in which you have to involve the head coach or even the other key members of the sporting department. That could be a chief scout, it could be, it could be a technical director again in, in this mix. But uh, as I've seen now from maybe 30 years ago, 25 years ago, when I entered the business, it was very much, well, at least in certain countries, the sporting director would be uh, fully responsible for all the signings and would kind of, players would turn up and he would just tell the coach, oh, here's, here's so-and-so and make sure it's good. Um, <laughs> but now we've ended up, I think, with, um, you know, with an atmosphere of teamwork um, and all the decisions or the important ones, they need to be anchored with, with more than just sporting director and board level. So I think that you need to enter this position and this role with an understanding that with, with, a, with a spirit of cooperation um, because otherwise I don't think it, it's not going to work. And, Otherwise, you, you work with a coach that you know so well and he knows you so well that you can kind of operate um, in tandem without involving each other too much. But I don't think that is a good model. One day the coach might disappear somewhere or, or the sporting director might leave from the club and then where do you go then? So, yeah, I think the, the key here is, um, is teamwork. Uh, and that's why it's also political position um, and your ability to convince people to be collaborative is as important as anything else in my opinion because you might <laughs> you might convince the head coach or um, the chief scout or even the uh, analytics people that a certain player is right you know that that discussion might might be sorted but you also need to convince them the president or the board and in other cases, the board might be keen on a certain player. And in that case, you might have to convince the head coach. So these processes, they take a lot of, um, they take a lot of time, but they also take a lot of convincing and, 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 and work on a, on a personal level. And through the time that you started to, the, to where you are now, 20 plus years in the industry, you would say that things have really changed. I think you were kind of hinting at that during this answer that to the way things have gone with media and maybe social media and things like that, there's, there's now more, more pressure and there's, everything's always getting leaked to the media or would you say that it's the same as back and when you started? No, I, I think social media has certainly driven uh, accelerated things, you know, decisions that are made. Well, like you said, uh, Will, will reach the, the outside world much um, at a much quicker rate. Whatever project you are working on, you must always be prepared that it could hit the media uh, any minute. I also think the mainstream media have had no other choice now but to kind of emulate social media in terms of it's all about breaking the stories and it's all about having very, very sharp, concise opinions very quickly. And um, of course, ideally, you you should be stoical and you should sit back and you should stick to your philosophy and you should believe in, in your work and the people around you and, and the direction 
um, you are going, but inevitably <laughs> you will be affected by 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 the media. It's it's everywhere and it's around us all the time, and uh, and and the opinions that might previously would have been confined to 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 pubs and um, and and, and supporter forums or what have you, they are now out in the open. 24-7. So it is certainly a factor. Yeah, Tor, this one, and my next question comes from maybe more of an American angle uh, from, the, from an MLS standpoint, but how much do you, in, in your career, have you found that the, the media sign of a signing actually goes into the decision you make? Meaning a player's popularity, maybe where they come from, something, you know, you know like a lot of Places in MLS, they want they want to sign a player from from Spain compared to maybe a Central European country. While that's starting to change, that's still been um, or maybe from South America, that's been been a theme because that's generally played more popular with with the fans. Is that something that's that happens much in in your head, or that's been part of your experience? Not necessarily, um, at, but I can I can I can see. I can see it happening, and I can see the kind of the pressure from certain parts of um, of, of of the club um, that you know you you would come across this player, for example, from. Of course, it depends what market you operate on, um, in but you could come across a player from a certain country, let's say from Singapore or from Malaysia or <laughs> Indonesia, with five hundred thousand followers or in Instagram. And I think that to a lot of um, you know marketing executives and even CEOs would be very excited by that. You know, a, a signing could kind of double or treble your exposure. And certainly, if you do have following in those markets, that might make it even more attractive and interesting. But I think, as a, as a rule, right. it's quite clear that the sporting dimension and sporting consideration will have to override. You know that that will be the main emphasis of any signing. I, I think it, it's got to be like that, and it, it and it, it has to be because otherwise you're, I think, compromising something, even at the integrity level. You know, it is football, and it's about performing, and it is about results, and you are accountable for, uh, for results, and they and uh, results again drive revenue. So I I don't think there are really sort of shortcuts by by signing players because of their um, reputation or background from a media point of view. I, I think that will always backfire unless you have a player that can combine the two. Obviously, David Beckham was, you know, is obviously the extreme example. Everybody would have wanted him. Why? Because not only because he's a great, football, uh, great handsome guy with hundreds of millions of followers, but also because he was a great, great player. But I think in borderline cases... I think you just have to stick to um, to the footballing um, qualities. So, Tor, one thing that I always found very fascinating from your career, and I think a lot of people listening to this and aspiring sporting executives, scouts, etc., is that you've worked in many countries. There's a lot of people in the football business that work maybe if it's in their region, Scandinavia, or in the UK, or if it's in the United States and maybe Canada, or North America or, America or Mexico, but you've been able to work in so many different cultures and parts of the world. And when you go to a new country, how do you get deep into that football? You know, the year before you're at a different club, you're, at, you're in a different country, you get a new job, you're in a new country. What's the first thing that you do to try and understand, okay, where have I arrived? 
How do I improve my team? <clears throat> How do you do that? Well, for me, um, my first jobs were, were, didn't pose that much of a challenge because um, I, I obviously started off in England. I'd, I'd lived there for a bit before I, um, before I started um, at Watford. Um, and the, I knew pretty well the English mentality and English football. So that wasn't a particularly difficult step for me to make. And then I moved to German football. And again, I didn't have a senior role there, really. So I was able to, you know, learn and observe and uh, listen to, to very, very good people um, and stay in the environments, which I think for somebody who at the time was, uh, I was about mid-20s. Um, that was incredibly useful learning experience for me, just to be to have access to to people who were, I would say, top people in the business. And then my first job as a sporting director was was back in uh, in Norway, actually 2008, 2009. Didn't uh, wasn't particularly um, good experience um, for many many reasons, but I had been. Uh, living abroad for quite a quite a long time then, but I think my 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 two challenging experiences were Israel um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. we, we, and ironically uh, coming back to Norway in 2017 after okay. spending 98 okay. percent of the past uh, 20 years abroad. Um, but Israel was was for me different because um, I'd obviously been in in in, in France and, and England, and I worked a little bit in Italy as a as a as a scout. So I, I knew those countries quite well. But Israel was was different, and my approach was to to kind of come in and 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 stay a little bit in the background and tried to pick up as much as I could from the people around me, visit the different departments of the club. Um, I took a lot of advice from, from Sakhar, obviously the owner, Jankele Sakhar, um, who has 30-odd years experience in the, in the business, and I learned a lot from him. But football, you know, if you are in a senior position, being a scout is completely different, because scout, in my opinion, is the best job in the world, because if you're a full, fully employed scout, you're able to travel meet with a lot of interesting people, watch football. Um, it's basically a dream job. But at the end of the day, nobody will hold you accountable for anything because you're not, you're not making the, ultimately you're not making the, the final decision. So you can learn as you go along, but in a senior management position like a sporting director, you have to, you know, you have to deliver from day one and every little bit of what you do will be scrutinized. And there isn't such a thing anymore where you could say to, to, to people, well, judge me in five years. <laughs> that that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't apply. You will be judged continuously on a week-to-week basis and it will, your kind of stock will swing like, yeah, like the stock market today during the corona crisis. You know, one day you'll, be, you'll win one game and everybody says, oh, what a great player. He, he was responsible for signing. And then next match he'll get a two on the on the ratings and um, and people ask ask for your head <laughs> it's very very difficult to, to to jump straight into the job and then learn as you go by because basically as the matches start to and the season starts to unfold you you need to deliver so making the transition though from from the scout to the sporting director role 
Is that why sometimes in the business we see scouts who just do it for 30, 40 years, just as scouts, maybe chief scouts at some clubs, but they don't make the transition to sporting director because once you make that transition, there's much more pressure. It's very different kind of relationships you have to have. It's very different responsibilities. Is that why sometimes we see people just stick as scouts? Yeah, I think you summed up well there, uh, Rafi. And, um, and it's a good job. And uh, why, why risk it? You work in the background and uh, you do something that you love. And as I said, you get to meet a lot of, of, of great people, see interesting places. Whereas um, in the sporting director position, you, you really have to, I wouldn't say enjoy, but you need to have a certain feeling for a lot of other things than football. Um, you know, the political side and building those personal relations and trying to predict outcomes. That is something you go from, from, from a scout job, which is a, quite, a, I would say, a comfortable job to 24-7 full-on pressure job uh, and that's not for everybody and, and uh, I guess it's not good good for somebody's health even because you you really have to dedicate yourself fully uh, so so what that. made you Torm what made you want to make the jump then based on how you're describing it I don't think it doesn't sound like anyone would want to leave that that scouting position to become a sporting director for me, it was. Um, I mean, I I enjoyed um, I enjoyed the business side of of, uh, of football. I enjoyed the the management side, and I also liked the strategical dimension to to the role. Um, I also enjoyed the responsibility, and um, I think you get to test yourself uh, a lot more in that particular position, and you learn a lot from it. You but that comes with 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 a very strong commitment and you you really have to accept that football will take over your life um <laughs> and will have to be the number one priority and a lot of times uh you know we've seen is it also that when for example when a, a scout brings you a player uh and you're very excited about the player and you decide to make the signing do you feel like the scout doesn't get as much credit because he's the one that you know works under you and reports to you uh but he, He's essentially, you don't hear about him that much uh, in the media and the news. The fans don't even know him. I mean, I think, not, obviously not all football clubs, but I think there's a lot of clubs in the world where even the most passionate fans of the club don't know the names of the scouts on the team. They know the sporting director. They know the CEO. They know the coach, obviously, but they don't know the scout. So how, can you explain like how the, the transition of being the guy who goes and really does all the reports to being the sporting director who's now getting those reports and having to make the decision. Like how much did that change for you mentally when you had to make that transition? I certainly think that internally you have to, you, you, you have to acknowledge you who's done the, the main bit in a, in a successful transfer. Um, and I think clubs are, are, are good at that. And those who are, you know, good scouts, loyal scouts, um, and who have flagged up a lot of successful or flagged up players that have led to become successful transfers, they will enjoy recognition at their, at their clubs. And, and I think also by the same token, or conversely, you, you also have to uh, be prepared to, to give credit when, to other people when, uh, when transfers are successful. And then you, all, you have to 
but you have to take the blame <laughs> if they don't work out because basically you are the one that will be kind of in charge of the process that leads up to the transfer. So if you are convinced as a sporting director, you will try to pull the strings and like I um, like we touched on earlier, you know, the final to wrap up the package so that it, it can be done. But I think we asked even here I would I would come back to one of the first questions or the first topics that we discussed. I think we at this point moving away from the idea that one it is a one man, one woman show. And the, the pr process is now leading up to, uh, to, to signings, especially at professional level, will involve so many people that sometimes it's even hard to kind of track, well, who, 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 who instigated this particular uh, transfer. Because you will have several people traveling out to, 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 to see that player uh, in action live. Uh, you will have your analytics guys looking at him from other angles. You will have, as I said, the head coach will have a say in it. And ultimately the sporting director. So it is a team effort again. And sometimes the process will come from another angle. So I don't think, at least in the environments that I work, I don't feel that there, is a, that there are people who feel kind of um, forgotten or that their influence of... Uh, or, or good work has not been appreciated. I think if you have a good setup, I think everybody leaves their ego a little bit behind, you know, that to understand that it is the club you work for. And, you know, if there is a success story, well, then there, there are many, many stakeholders in that process. And I also think that without a good head coach and without a head coach or a coaching team who is prepared to work, you know, have without a coaching team that has a proper development plan for a player and put their um, handwork uh, or, or craftsmanship into the development of the player on a day-to-day -day basis, the player will never come good. So one thing is the spotting and the signing, but then it's actually making it, making the player work and, and being successful is down to the head coach, I would say. Probably the question that that people on on Twitter <laughs> debate the most that I'm sure you see Tor, <clears throat> that maybe you can walk us through is how how is it determined how do you how do you arrive at a number for a transfer fee when it comes I mean you were just talking about everybody that's involved when it comes to scouting a player but when the number is made public the transfer fee is something that always ends up uh, being debated like I said and sometimes can seem like a mystery. And that's a lot of the times used as a barometer for success. So can you maybe walk us through how, how you arrive at that number? Yeah, that's, that's a great uh, question. Um, in most of the cases, I think there is a kind of a, um, you do have a, a, an idea of a ballpark figure based on similar, uh, similar transfers. So you can look at age, you can look at from what market or club you are buying the player from position, um, and obviously the quality, which is sometimes subjective, and transfer to the market in which you are in which you are based. So there are some uh, parameters there that you can that will build some kind of perception. I have to admit that agents also play a role here. They are they always have a they always play a part in in transfers, and they will have some kind of an idea of what it will take to 
for the selling club to release that player. And obviously, if that number is within your kind of valuation, you decide to um, to move on with 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 a with a transfer. Um, but clearly, if if they shoot too high and and and, and show lack of uh, will to 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 do business, then you you move on to the next player on your list. Clearly, there is no um, kind of model yet that will help us understand what is the correct transfer market value of a player because it's always in you know the seller or, or, or the owning club that sort of calls the shots and you'll have to find what is there at what point will they kind of start to 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 think twice about uh, your interest and um and uh, so your process is just kind of finding out where is that um where is that point where they go from you know just not picking up the phone to at least answering your calls. Speaking of uh, transfers, we got to ask, do you have a, a funny or a crazy transfer story that you can tell us that maybe you haven't shared before that has to kind of do with what we're talking about, maybe the amount or, or something that you experienced in your career that uh, is a story that you always will remember? You know, obviously, the more the more in demand the player, the the, the the further you have to go to to convince the player, and uh, there's a lot of work that's being done in the background to to convince a player to join your club. If 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 that is, as I said, if that is a player that, that is uh, performing well and um, has a lot of suitors, then you have to to work hard. Uh, you, I always like to meet with the player, like to meet with his family, also to understand. Uh, his mentality and uh, if you don't obviously if you don't uh, like what you see you still have a chance of, of pulling out that's I would say 95% of the transfers today will follow that kind of um, uh, process you know most people would meet and, and vet the player before signing before signing him but there, was, there still will be cases where, where a player will arrive for the medical and that's the first time he he meets the executives or even the coaching staff of, of of his new of his new club because time sometimes is is a factor in in football. But I'm not answering your question now. But clearly, the more I think I think one side which is kind of under communicated in football is the, obviously we are now using technology, data, um, you know, analytics to analyze what we see um, on the pitch and we are breaking that into numbers and and very specific information that we can read that that can help us diminish the mistakes but uh, in my view the equally important is to understand the player and the mentality get the feeling what kind of type is what makes him tick how will he adapt to our environment Will they adapt to our kind of um, environment in terms of the, the players, the dressing room and, and all that kind of thing? Is he a kind of guy your coach wants to work with? So that side of it is also very, very important. Yeah, I want to I wanna follow up on, on two things that you mentioned in your last answer. First one being uh, the mentality. I, I think that it'd be interesting for us to hear more about how much research really goes into that. Is the club really 
you know, if they're going to buy a player for 30 million euro, it's very clear that he's talented in terms of all the football side, the analytics, watch him on video. That's all been done. But how much research goes in to, to finding out if this guy is going to be good in the dressing room, if this guy is, is going to be uh, someone that is positive influence in the club, is, is that done before making this huge commitment or is it that, you know, a player comes and you meet him and you speak to him and that's kind of the, that's kind of it. Or is there more of a background, at least in, in your career, is there more of a background in trying to understand the player's mentality? Cause I think we've seen so many times clubs by a player, the player is extremely talented. There's no question about that, but nothing. Well, we don't know if people have researched about his mentality, but he comes to the club. He's a mess in the dressing room. The club ends up not having the player perform. The club ends up spending a ton of money and the whole, it just, honestly, it doesn't work out for anyone, not just for the club, but even the player. It's a very, very complex issue that consists of many, many different um, uh, issues, obviously. Um, I think there's been a massive development in this particular area, uh, whereas before, even go well into the 2000s, I think clubs really didn't, spend too much time on the on the intel work um, and very much trusted what they picked up from um, from seeing the player out on on the pitch or even just from the early meetings or very very brief uh, information that they might have received from from um, you know contacts but I think now at least at the very very top end clubs are putting a great, uh, great deal of work uh, into, into this. And uh, I have seen that, as I said, at Champions League level, top, top clubs there will have dossiers on the players, you know, could, that could range from 30 to 50 pages. And an important part of those dossiers will be kind of a mental, you know, a mental profile on, of the player. And this would be in cases this information would be collected from, yes, subjective sources that might know the player or know his environment. And there will be stuff picked up from, from his behavior on the pitch. Um, for example, you know, if the team goes one or two nil down, how does he react to that? How does he deal with pressure? How does he deal with playing away at, uh, at, at uh, Liverpool uh, as opposed to away at... Uh, at, at an empty ground, you know. So there are a lot, lot, lot of things there that can give you important clues about about the players. Um, I know that, especially in England, they there are agencies that uh, monitor players on social media and sell that information to clubs in their work in building such dossiers. But <laughs> honestly, I, I I don't think social media is a particularly good source because most at least 95 percent of players will uh, project uh, uh, a much more edited and unrealistic pictures on picture of themselves on social media than what is the right. case in i in think reality. everyone does right yeah, i don't exactly I, don't, I think everyone tries to present happy life you post a picture no. with someone you're smiling um no, it's interesting. It's interesting yeah. that you mentioned that. So you, you'd say that that's really changed in the last 15 years, that there's much more of an emphasis on knowing the players, uh, you know, ment mentality and joining a club. So that's, I yeah, think, and I, and I think this comes from, 
I think this comes from uh, new owners, um, and I'd say that the American uh, transatlantic owners have brought, uh, I think, higher standards of due diligence uh, to football clubs. Um, I think they expect uh, that what you bring to to a board meeting when you present potential transfer targets, I think they expect certain quality of information, not just kind of a, a vocal report or a, or a few sheets of paper or, or some edited highlights. They they want a proper a, a, a proper package. Uh, to be presented and, and quite light, rightly so because this is obviously now a multi-multi-million industry and, and um, people would want to see their money being, being well spent. So I think that's something especially the American owners uh, introduced to, to England and now it seems to be spreading also to, um, to other countries. It's interesting that, to hear that the Americans are having that effect, the American owners. I want to move to another tool that's developed over the last, I guess you can tell us tour maybe when Y Scout and Instat became really widely used throughout the world. Um, and for, for listeners who don't know, who aren't familiar with Y Scout or Instat, they're, they're scouting software. <laughs> There's thousands of hours of videos, heat maps, everything you could, you could uh, anything you could imagine really that scouts use technical directors, coaches, everyone all over the world, really in every league has access to. There's, an insane amount of depth in terms of, or breadth, I guess, of leagues that, that are covered by these softwares. So yeah, Tor, what, what kind of impact have they had? I mean, I'm sure it's been monumental, but how has it impacted you in your career? What, what, what did you find yourself doing differently when you had them at your disposal? Um, just in general, can you talk about how they, how they changed the game in your industry? And I got to ask just to follow up on that at the end of your answer, do you like it? Because I've spoken to some sporting directors who, who actually say that it's made things worse, but uh, I'll let you answer first Jesse's question. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, I, I remember my first encounter with, with Scout. That was kind of, um, it would have been latter part of the 2000. Um, and it, it was introduced to me by a, a colleague in Italy um, who, who showed me. And, and it was actually, back then, it was a box. Uh, like a set-top box that you connected to your TV, a bit like a satellite uh, um, receiver. And I don't know the specific of the technology or how it actually worked, but you plugged into TV and there was some some menu and uh, and um, and there was a big catalog of, of 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 games and edited edited games and stuff. It was very exciting. So that just shows how far we've come now. 12, 14 years later, it's obviously um, Wisecout, I think, is uh, not just a wealth of uh, footage um, and edited footage. So you can go in and watch whatever sequence, uh, headers or shots or through balls, accelerations, set pieces. So it's, it's very, very useful, not just in player scouting but, or recruitment, but also in um, analysis. Um, game analysis as well but um look it's, it's it's got to be a step forward clearly um it's cost cutting um i still think clearly you need to well if you have the resources and you work at the top or mid, mid end of football you still have to travel out to to watch 
players live maybe even a dozen times that comes with uh with with just doing a proper proper preparatory work but y scout will give you kind of the pre-scouting pre-live scouting bit so you can you can pick up routinely from um, you know footage from from all over the world especially south america argentina brazil um i know the big or most most of, of European professional clubs in the top leagues, they will have sort of tracking lists. So every time a 16, 17, 18-year-old um, makes his debut around the top leagues in Europe or South America, there will be a flag and you will go and watch him. And if that looks interesting, you will you will put him on some kind of a, of a tracking list and you will keep on monitoring him. So the way you kind of pick up players and introduce them into your scouting system is much, much easier. And then will arrive the moment where you make a decision, oh, actually, is this player so exciting that we, we might have to send somebody out to, 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 to watch him in the flesh? So I think for that kind of preliminary work, um, it is uh, indispensable and it does save you a lot of um, time and it saves your resources. You can, it helps you direct in the scouts much more um, with a lot more uh, meaning so that you don't send them to watch players that are basically a waste of time. Plus, obviously, you can also um, watch all this. Yeah, okay, you could also edit the games yourself if you have a video um, editor, but that would cost you <laughs> a lot more than just to, to hire that one person that what, what you pay uh, per year for for these particular services and and they come with 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 the opportunity as I said of watching all these kind of edited bits so yeah okay uh, Rafi maybe there is a danger that you I know some colleagues have kind of pointed out that you tend to get maybe too hooked on the highlights uh, and you just watch the good sides so or the good bits of a player the the downsides kind of get lost in your excitement of finding the good finding the good bits the share user friendliness of these platforms make it kind of make you lose a little bit of focus that you tend to get too hooked on as i said on 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 on, on edited bits so you you can also lose then the sight of of the actions within a 90 minute uh, context. So if you watch a game, a full 90-minute game, you will obviously understand when, in what periods the action uh, or the good or the bad bits happen, and it, you will have a kind of a, a better impression at the end of it than if you are just watching whenever that particular player has touched the ball. That will take you five, seven minutes or less so I, I see there are dangers, but if you use it in the right way and you have experienced people, you know, operating the systems and 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 and, uh, and doing their work, I think it is a massive uh, improvement for football. Do you do you think that these these services? I mean, I think the answer probably has to be yes, but maybe the question is to what degree that these services will will knock down physical barriers, geographical barriers, meaning if you look at any, any league naturally because of 
um, things like budgets for, for flying your scouts places, naturally you're going to scout in countries that surround you physically, right? So there's more Albanians playing in, in Italy than there are Albanians playing in England. Now there are a number of things that go into that, but that, that type of trend you can see all over the world, right? That's, just, that's, that's kind of natural for a lot of reasons. But now that you have these scouting softwares towards you think that we'll start to see less and less of that. We'll start to see, like, for example, we, we spoke with Mark Bosnich on our last episode. He's, he's in Australia. Is it, will, will this type of these services make it easier for Australians? Um, not, the, not that they've had a horrible time breaking into Europe, but will it make it easier for someone thousands of kilometers away to break into the, to the higher leagues? Yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know if you played around with, uh, with, with white scout, uh, Jesse, but I mean, you, you can actually lose yourself in or waste many, many hours just playing around and watching football from Nepal and of course, yeah, El Salvador and uh, <laughs> and uh, and, uh, <laughs> and Cambodia. If you just have share kind of excitement, how 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 does football look there and, right. and what kind of um, what what's this all about? But but obviously, um, but you still don't no, see those players just just yet no, no. coming to Europe. But, no, but will that change? No, I, no, I don't think so because I, you know, I think there are, yeah, there might be exceptions that will get picked up from kind of obscure countries, and there there have been previously anyway. But I, I think the level of football in in certain countries is so far behind that uh, even outstanding players from certain leagues will not have a chance to to fend for themselves in, in professional uh, leagues in Europe and, 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 and even, you know, the MLS. But I think um, it certainly uh, opens the, some leagues that um, I think we, we find quite, or previously found quite in, inaccessible in, uh, in, in Europe where, where the South American leagues, especially Chile, Colombia, Argentina, to a lesser extent, but those sort of Western, West Coast teams of South America, um, I find quite interesting to watch because they have an unbelievable rate of, of, of players coming through. So I think those, those are interesting. Brazil, which is so huge, takes you so much time to, to, um, to travel around the country um, or even scout very uh, efficiently. You can do uh, well on, through, through Scout, But I can't really... Obviously, globalization in football is not um, is not nothing new. And following Bosman and uh, you know EU opening up to many more countries and more relaxed foreigner rules, players inevitably started uh, mixing across um, continents. But I, I don't think that would is so much down to the scouting software uh, because players found their way uh, anyway. To, uh, to, to those countries that uh, were, were able to invest in, in foreigners. One region, obviously, which is underrepresented for logical reasons on, on scouting software is Africa. Um, apart from the continental competitions and the national team um, games, there is very, very little footage from sub-Saharan uh, leagues, apart from South Africa. Um, so that's still, I think, kind of a, a market that if you're operating at, for example, in Israel or Norway, smaller countries, 
um, the African market is is still extremely important for us to bring players into professional football and then and then selling them on and and that can only be done by traveling really um, is that something that you've had the chance to do well I've certainly had scouts going there um, and uh, here in Norway we've had a a lot of success with uh, with uh, Brazilian uh, not Brazilians with uh, with African players, particularly players from uh, Nigeria and uh, and Senegal, Ivory Coast, uh, Western Africa, and many of them have have come through Norway and other Scandinavian countries and and moved on to to great careers. Uh, Igalo is one case uh, at Man United now. He was one right. of the kind of the first success stories. Came to Lean there in. In Norway, John Obi Mikkel as well came to the same club. So it's kind of a, a bit of a catapult for 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 African players to to uh, to kind of climb the ladder. Yeah, I'm glad actually, Tor, that you mentioned that because one thing that I've been reading, uh, at least in Israel, and I'm sure it's, it's also definitely possible in other countries with similar similar size leagues, is that a lot of leagues, you know, are worried about the effects of the coronavirus and you know, leagues that offered players $150,000 a year net um, are maybe going to cut the budgets to 70000 and 60000 And a lot of, there's been a lot of talk that there's going to be a lot of young African players that generally uh, would probably not get the opportunity in the first division of a league like Israel, but rather go to a second division, that these teams will be more open to bringing these young talents and kind of just letting them play and not being worried so much about uh, the results in the field just because of financial reasons. Do you think this is something that, that also could happen uh, in other parts of the world where, you know, in general, obviously you can bring African players for cheaper than you can other European countries. Do you think this is something that leagues in the world should look at it, at re- recruiting more from Africa, uh, from all over Africa, West Africa, East Africa, and so on? So I, what excites me with, with African players or now coming from a, Scandinavian, or this could also be an Israeli viewpoint, is that if you travel to to Senegal or to to Nigeria or Ivory Coast, Ghana, you are kind of on the same, more or less on the same playing field as a club from France or England or or Italy or or Germany, because the player will not, a player who's a big talent, for example, from Senegal will not wait. He doesn't have time to wait for for a better offer. So if if a Norwegian club, it's it's about you know whoever comes first is first served. You are able to pick from a potential range of players, which is less scouted, less vetted. Um, so the possibility of making um, you know a transfer that could generate you millions and millions is so much greater for in Africa than for for example even signing a player from even Iceland which is has traditionally been a been a been a country from which we have recruited players in Norway and have gone on to do to 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 do greater things in in European football but even in Iceland you know most European clubs now at least those who spend a lot of time and resources on scouting they will have kind of uh, scouted the best uh, 13 or 14 or 15 year olds from Iceland um, and indeed the best ones they are already bypass Norway and they go directly to 
to England or Holland or, or, or Germany in academies there. But in, especially in West Africa, you could come across, even if you are a small club in, uh, you are Hopwell, Katamon in, uh, in Israel, or you're a small club in second division, no, you could travel to Senegal and Nigeria and you could bring home a player that in six months you can sell on for, for, for a big uh, windfall. And I think that is quite unique with, um, uh, with, with that market. And they also have a very young population. There's such a pressure coming from, um, from, from players, young players coming up all the time. Um, and there are very few people traveling there to, to, to watch players. So I think Africa still represents a huge you know, potential market for many, for many clubs. All right. Well, we're, we're coming to the end of the, of the show as much as I think we could continue asking you questions for hours, but for, for someone who's, you know, in the age that you were when you first started out in, uh, in Switzerland, what would be your advice now in, in 2020 for a way to, to get involved if you want to be a football scout? What's, what's the best way to try and get in that profession? I often get asked that question, Rafi. Um, I think there is not one path that um, that I can I can recommend because there are many many ways that will can lead to a full time job in um, in uh, in football. I think there are there's still room for for um, for for good traditional scouts, um, but I think you need an edge. So. I started off offering, um, I think, pretty decent objective information from the Scandinavian market, which at that time, mid-90s, was really coming up. Um, I think at some point, I think 97, 98, there were 20 odd, I think 26, 27 Norwegian players in the, in the Premier League. Now you can probably count them on, on one hand, but there was a tremendous interest in players coming from this part of the world and that kind of gave me an edge. Um, clubs were very interested in, 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 in information and particularly objective information because I, I didn't represent any of them. I wasn't an agent, so people um, at least took my, my, my uh, uh, information at a kind of a preliminary level uh, for face value. But uh, so I think if you... To, to have an edge, um, if uh, I sometimes get... Um, emails and, uh, and messages from people um, offering information from, from leagues that I don't know. So that could be, for example, Paraguay. It could be, yeah, it could even be European leagues like Poland or, or, or Czech Republic or Balkans. Um, and if people kind of send me samples of very well presented systematic information. What are the best players, for example, from 98 to 2002, position by position, with some small facts? Um, that would be kind of interesting information for me. I, I, I would sit down and, uh, and, and, and have a good look at the lists, and I will go on Scout and I will... That stuff will give me some kind of a starting point. Um, and help me, guide me in, in the right direction as to how I can learn more about these markets. So that, that's one way of going, going, um, uh, going about it. I think there's still um, analytics is still 
we're still at a very early level uh, as to how we know how analytics can be optimally applied to football. So I think there's a lot of um, tech guys, you know, computer <laughs> wizards who can probably come up with models and new ways of, of looking at yeah. things that can almost revolutionize um, the way we look at, at scouting. So if you have an edge, I also think speaking one or two languages uh, helps. Um, so yeah, there, there, there are several ways uh, of going about it. And, um, and also simply just get involved in, in your local clubs, your local environments, speak to people, listen, um, agents as well are useful. They can always introduce you uh, to people. Last question for me. Um, it might extend the show by an hour, so I'm sorry about that. If maybe you could give us a, a, sh- a short answer, because I think the question kind of requires a long one. But you, I, I'm curious to hear why, at least why you think, or yeah, what your take is on how you go. And granted, it was maybe over the course of 20 years. It was 20 years ago that it happened, but. How do you go from 27 Norwegians in the Premier League to, to counting all the Norwegians in the Premier League on one hand? I mean, in my head, it could have anything to do with, you know, if it was considered an untapped market, maybe it was just cheaper uh, for teams to go there and they figured why not the, the players in Norway are just about as good as the players from, from the other countries that we're looking at, might as well go there and pay half the transfer fee. Or do you think it had more to do with, with the quality of the player? They were more physical, they were more technical. Um, I know it's kind of uh, maybe a difficult question to answer, but why do you think something like that happens in generally? Uh, generally, because I'm sure you see trends like that in football over the all over the world, right? Where I'm sure Iceland is a good example, where maybe 20 years ago, uh, or maybe if you go further back, I'm not sure when Iceland really became a hotbed. But yeah, can you explain maybe how that how that comes about? I think you answered. Um already answered uh, half of uh, <laughs> half of what I, were, I, I had noted down here. Yeah, I think several synergies kind of conspired in the, to the advantage of Norwegian football. We had a very, very good generation of players coming through. There's no question about that. You know, uh, we qualified for 94 World Cup, 98 World Cup and haven't qualified since uh, 98 and there were some pretty pretty uh, good players in in in, uh, in 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 those World Cup squads. So obviously um, that was the most important thing. The secondly, I think the mentality of the players uh, suited and the playing style suited English football very well. Um, physical, hardworking. Um, and back then in the mid-90s, English football was quite different to what it is today. Then, as you rightly pointed out, Jesse, um, English clubs started to, you know, the proper TV money, media deals started to kick in. And it started to kind of uh, outgrow Norwegian football, if you like. Um, and uh, the clubs were able to pick up players from you know, France, even Italy, uh, Central Europe, even beyond that, South America. So all of a sudden, uh, in the 90s, English football went from a place in which 
foreign footballers were still kind of seen as a bit of a novelty to pretty much being able to pick up the the, the, the creme de la creme, particularly after you know Abramovich came into Chelsea and signed Robin and 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 and, uh, and those guys and and then it just kicked on from there and at the same time I also think that maybe certain things weren't we in Norway didn't manage to pick up you know continue that the development of of the rate uh, that we um, that we did in the eighties and the nineties. Um, but it seems to be picking up again, uh, Jesse. And uh, we we really have an exciting crop of uh, of young players now, and it just seems to be uh, to, to to keep coming through. So hopefully, I doubt that one day we'll be back to twenty seven, twenty eight players in the Premier League. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it'd be nice to get into double figures at least. Last question on the show, uh, Tor. Which market do you think we should look at right now? I mean, I want to give a plug and say that you do a phenomenal job right now for ESPN FC. Uh, I think everyone who's a football fan enjoys reading your work. And Thank you. I think it'd be very interesting to hear which market you think is the next one to be the hotbed or which country do you think we'll see a lot of players coming from that we don't really know that much about. And it doesn't have to be now. It could be in a couple of years. It could be in the next few years. But what's a market that you would have us uh, really keep our eye on? Besides Norway. <laughs> yeah uh well we again it depends on from what perspective uh we are we are talking here but uh i think um france obviously they're going to carry on developing top players um and i think that was one of the discoveries i mean i was already aware of this maybe the magnitude of french players coming through from not just uh, to you know, ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand, but beyond that, uh, the amount of players coming through uh, France is is quite staggering, and they seem to be all positions, all um, and also different kind of. You know, you have the kind of the the technical uh, playmaking style players, but you also have the bigger ones with pace and like to run behind, and you have ball playing center backs and and and, and elegant uh, defensive midfielders not just kind of those with a, a big physical presence so i think the work they're doing in france at academy level maybe following a bit of a disappointing period in the, in the last decade but that's certainly on on the way back up again and seem to be kind of taking over from germany that was uh, the leader um and also england as well i think england was the most heavily represented um nationality out of the 36 i think they had eight or nine brazil will always keep producing footballers again there are so such a footballing culture there and uh, they also create or develop such a diverse range of players they will just keep keep coming through i think colombia is one uh, country to keep an eye on Still, is not that that's nothing new. They've they've been steadily developing good players for how, how long now, thirty, forty years. But I think they uh, they 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 will. You'll see a greater uh, number of Colombian players. I think in in European football. And if you look at a lot of the young players coming through uh, the French academies, many of them have roots, obviously, in Senegal, Ivory Coast, Mali. Guinea, that corner of, of Western Africa seems to be a real hotbed for 
for for almost as a DNA, DNA for 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 football there, which is which is quite uh, remarkable. And the physical makeup also of the players seems to be very interesting. But can I make can I make one little statement before I before we sign off there? Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Yes. I just wanted, and obviously you are uh, broadcasting. Of I know you are in the US, Jesse, but you are in in Israel, uh, Rafi. So I just wanted to, to to take the opportunity, and hopefully we'll have a few Israeli listeners. And I just wanted to send a great um, uh, my best regards to supporters of Maccabi Haifa. I think is is a fantastic club uh, and a real family uh, club with the best supporters I think in um, in the Western uh, Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean, maybe best supporters even in in uh, in the world. Wow. And um, I just hope uh, for for great success now and uh, progress when this uh, virus has um, brought brought football back. Just a uh, lot of love and uh, affection to. Uh, to, to the green supporters of Maccabi Haifa. I just wanted to, to say that. Had a, had a fantastic time there. Thank you very much, Tor, for joining us. Uh, it was really, really, really interesting to hear about the, the concept of sports director scouting, where the future holds, where we are now. Um, we hope that you continue to stay safe and that we can chat again soon. Thank you for having me on and, um, and stay safe, guys. And I uh, look forward to... Um, following your, uh, your podcast uh, in the weeks and months to come. Thank you for having me on. Woo!